Greetings and salutations, one and all in Cyberland. Welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, and today I'm very excited to be joined by a relatively new friend of mine, uh, Lewis Hoerman. Uh, Lewis and I ran across each other on LinkedIn, and we had a, a really interesting back and forth conversation. And I'll, I'll share with uh, with you folks what that conversation was about because that's what we're really gonna. Focus on today. Uh, Lewis is uh, a former um, member of the armed forces, and I want to thank him very much for his service. As as I always do, we appreciate uh, giving of your your time and yourself to help serve uh, serve the country. Uh, and since he's done his service, he's been a cybersecurity practitioner. He is an educator. He teaches classes. He teaches people how to communicate. So we have a lot of overlap there, which is always nice. So welcome. Thank you for joining us, Lewis. How are you? Thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah, I'm glad to be here and excited uh, to be a part of the show. All right. Awesome. So uh, as always, we start off with a movie question. So what am I going to hit you with, Lewis? Let me see. Um, okay. So name a movie that has had a formative influence on your worldview. So in other words, a movie that you saw that just hit you in a certain way that you said, you know what, I'm going to change something about how I interact with people around me. Mm. You know, as a I know fan that's a tough show, one. As a fan of the show, I knew this was coming. I was, uh, I didn't quite know how to prepare. I was like, hmm, what's going to, I love this nationally. And, and the one I'm just going to throw it out that comes right to my mind is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, you know, what, what I love about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is that uh, one, I've been watching it since I can remember. And I still enjoy it to this day as if it was the first time I was watching it. And at each different stage of my life, it's meant something different. And, and I think that ability to carry with you and shape the narrative as your life adapts, and you see it from these different perspectives, first is the child who gets to eat nothing but candy, then is a parent who's freaked out about their kid eating nothing but candy, and then is the chocolate shop owner who's just looking for someone to pass along the passion. I think that that probably speaks the most to my worldview. Okay. All right. So, so now I'm going to, I'm going to push you a little bit. So which version of the story did you like better? Gene Wilder. The original or the newer one? Totally the original. I mean, they both have merit. The second one was more accurate to the book, but Gene Wilder, I mean, just no one does it better than that. Yep. Yeah. That, and the, the little known tidbit that I always talk about with that movie is the first scene where he walks out and does that forward flip. That was not in the script. He chose oh, to wow. do that of his own volition. So all the surprise that all the kids saw uh, was uh, was great. So that's that's a great choice. I'm, I'm a big Roll Dahl fan. Um, mm. I love the fact that in all his stories, yes, the kids can get engaged but there's always an adult element to it. And I think yeah. there's always some kind of a lesson. And I think, um, I think it's great because he doesn't treat kids like they're kids. Like that was, right. you know, when I raised mine, I always wanted them to sort of, you know, as adultish as possible, uh, given, given the context. So, so great choice. So for me, and this may sound like a bit of a pat answer, um, but I really, really liked, um, uh, uh, Fer um, Fer Ferris Bueller. Um, not Ferris Bueller. I did like Ferris Bueller, but that was definitely not, uh, not, not, uh, not the movie. Um, but I just think, uh, Tom Hanks, um, 
playing, you know, life is like a box of chocolates. Uh, I just thought that was such a, an important lesson. I think, um, you know, so many, so many people, you know, look at those who may not be as developed or may not be as well educated or may not have the background or the knowledge. And I think sometimes they treat them as if they are, um, you know, less than, and I just thought the, the things he was able to accomplish, um, you know, just, I just thought that movie was so good. And maybe it's a little bit dated now, but I just thought he was, he was so good. And I think it was just such a wholesome, sweet movie without being cloying and, um, and sort of over the, over the top. Um, and I think that's actually a great transition, right? Because, he he served in the military and and he helped Lieutenant Dan and and saved him and he served in a war. Frankly, that as we know was not super popular uh, in in the U.S. The first war that was sort of broadcast over over media uh, and I, and I think that there was a, a reputational thing there. And while those two guys didn't really have a lot of time, a lot of problem kind of transitioning. But although well, Lieutenant Dan had some issues, but you know he was able to to transition in into, you know, the real world environment. And as you and I talked about when we first met, met on LinkedIn, um, I, you know, I appreciate the service people do. And I think sometimes there's a challenge coming out of the military and, and moving into, into public sector, private sector, whatever it may be. And in my opinion, I think that military people with military training, military backgrounds have something to bring to environments, I think, especially in, in cybersecurity and, uh, and risk management. And I feel like sometimes they struggle. I think they, they look at their resume, their CV, and they go like, how does this do? And I don't think you need to be a cybersecurity person. So, so let's talk a little bit about how you've helped other people, other other you know former servicemen and women to to move into into the cyberspace, and let's use that as a as a jumping off point. Yeah, Jeffrey, excellent. You know, I'll tell you the the first thing we all struggle with when we come out is the culture change. We don't a lot of times are we're not really aware of just how much of a, a culture we're in, a culture that's different from our family culture or where we're from. Once you join the military. That initial training session we often call often call boot camp. What that does is it strips away the culture that you came from and instills in you a new culture, a new culture of identity, of of accountability and integrity that that is life requirement for the rest of the time you're in the service. And when you get out, you're, you're saying to yourself, maybe I don't want to be in the military anymore. Maybe I'm done with that service. So I'm ready. And you get out. But you don't really know what that means. It's when you're looking for that, when you get out and you find that that shift in culture, that can be the initial change. And I think that's what really pulls a lot of military folks into IT. IT has very much a command and control structure to it, naturally built in in the way that IT is managed. You know, we have the CIO or the CTO, the CISO, and then the different elements of the IT department especially in the engineering department, like network engineering, different kinds of endpoint detections. All this has very much a top-down flow to it. And that appeals to us because we're, that's something that feels familiar. We're used to this kind of this person does that and this person does that and, and this clarity of roles. And so generally what I find myself doing with folks who just got out is letting them know 
that that culture can still exist around them where they find it for themselves, where they build it for themselves. And that's where, you know, the training comes in. A lot of training that we get in the military is, is project focused, task focused. You know, you learn a task, you learn a job, you learn that thing and you do it with precision because precision matters. And, and then when they get out, they say, okay, well, I'm used to a very high level of accountability, high level of precision. Where can I bring that? Where can I put that? And IT says, hey, bring it over here. And that's, that's where that first initial transition looks like is where do I fit in and how do I get the training to fit in into that environment that it feels familiar to me? Does that seem familiar to what you've heard and seen in the past? Yeah. And, and I love that. And I think culture is such an important thing. And I think finally, I mean, I've been doing this for 25, almost 30 years at this point now. And I think just recently in the last few years, we start to hear that talk about culture. Uh, there was actually an interesting exchange on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, and I'm actually working with one of the gents that put it up. But he was trying to come up with some metrics for culture. And I thought he, there was some good kernels there, but I had some questions which they didn't have answers for. But I think I think culture is is really important. I do want to pull a little bit though. So you talked about accountability. So as we know in the military, chain of command, you know, do this oftentimes without an explanation, and I think that is problematic in the private sector, right? You go into a corporate environment. I always ask people, how many of you have a password policy and everybody's hands yeah. go up? And I say, well, do you explain why you have a password policy? And most of the hands go down. Yeah. So when when you're talking to, to you know, fellow former servers, for, uh, you know, in your background, how do we get them to think about the fact that that sometimes explanations are necessary. Sometimes there needs to be a justification and we need to move away from you just have to do it because I say so. Because we know culturally in private sector, that doesn't work. So what, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also part of that cultural shift for us. You know, you take someone who says that those placed above you, you, you have to listen to them because if you don't, people die. That's not... Uh, you know, a, a thought that's not an idea. It's not a metaphor. It's an actuality that if you don't listen in detail, people die and you can't wait for justification. And so taking that mindset and saying, hey, there's space for that. There's space for that dedication. However, we still need to provide some context because the context is not built in. Why do we have a password policy? Why is that critical? Why do systems kind of exist at a higher risk without these policies? If we don't have them in place and we don't enforce them. And once folks start to get in on that, they start to realize that like, oh, okay, what's missing that I'm used to automatically having from the military is the context. And the military context is built in. Our mission's built in, the direction's built in, there, there's no need for further context. And IT, when they get out that shift, and what appeals to us the most is that not only is the context not necessarily built in, but there's plenty of space to provide your value, your insight and your knowledge and your experience to help other people gain that context. Why are password policies important? Why, why should I not plug a USB device into a corporate computer that I found on the ground, right? Why, why should these things like, why should I not just trust a vendor? All these things like the training will click in after they get acclimated to the environment and understand that context. I think that's where that space exists. 
Okay. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's great stuff. And I think getting people to understand, I mean, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with RMF and, and I love RMF. The problem I have seen is that because so many people in those roles are still about, okay, where's the checklist, right? I got a CYA. We've seen that RMF has, I think, been challenged. And years and years ago, I did a presentation um, at a, a base in Texas, and uh, the colonel who brought us in, he said, so what do you guys think? And I said, you're going to have to wait for a lot of these people to retire, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And and I think some of them don't necessarily ever sort of get rid of that because it's so ingrained in them. Now, so in the military, right, clearly we have enlisted folks and we have officers. A lot of the officers have higher levels of education, either through, uh, you know, the military education or or you know, taking money. Some of the folks that come out of the enlisted side maybe don't necessarily have that that college degree or don't have that higher level of, of education, which truthfully, I don't see as a problem. I would never see that as a, as a problem for me hiring, but I think a lot of companies do. So if, if someone comes to you and says, Lewis, you know, I want a job. I don't have a college degree. Are you seeing that as a problem? How do people get past that when they're, when they're looking to get jobs in corporate environments? Yeah, I, I think it's an excellent question. I'll tell you, I've seen it go both ways where, you know, the degree mattered uh, from a sense that certain contracts required it. And so it was a, it was a contractual requirement. But I'll give you an example of a guy I'm working with right now, incredibly inspirational person. He shows up out of the army and he was an infantryman in the army. So his job every day was to show up on time and run fast and listen to orders. And he did that ex- in an exemplary way. But after about four years, he realized he wanted to do more. He wanted to get into cyber, learn about this IT thing, mostly to give his family a better life. And so he applied to go to the cyber portion of the army. They told him, no, you don't have the background. You don't have the training. Uh, You're just not ready. And he, he could have accepted that. He could have said, okay, I'm a grunt for life. I'm built for grunt work. And that's what I'm going to do. Grunt is our slang for infantrymen, people on the, on the very bottom of the skill level. He could have accepted that, but he didn't. He got out and he used his GI Bill, his training money, and he went and got IT certifications and training. He applied for a corporate position and he got it ahead of his degree. Right now, he finishes his bachelor's in about, I think, in about two months. And he has just taken that experience and that grit and that desire to increase his own quality of life and his family's quality of life to just dig in and find where he can apply his value, his intelligence, and that desire to just build a better world. So whenever you think about, does corporate America require a degree? I will not, I will, I won't say never know, but I'll say that there's always a way when the grit and the intention and the desire exist and you don't stop. So with your question of whether the officers and the enlisted have different training requirements, that's absolutely correct. Officers usually have a degree and enlisted typically don't only because it's not an entrance requirement. That's quickly changing. And what we're finding is that with more training opportunity and more education dollars, that our active duty and veterans are able to seek out that advanced training. Why? Because our tools and our mission require it. And when they get out, they're able to do a lot more with it. Right. So that's great. And I think think that tenacity is definitely something that the military 
instills, right? You know, you mentioned basic training, kind of stripping people down and then giving that, that tenacity. And, um, and I agree. And, and, you know, I used to review job descriptions for hiring managers frequently in my previous roles. And I always used to tell them, don't require, you can, you, you want a degree, you want a certification. We like this, but it's not required because otherwise what happens? HR doesn't see it and they chuck the resume. Right. And then we end up with the gap that we, that we have seen. So, so I like that. And I think that that GI bill is a, is a great thing. And, um, I think, and I, I applaud that gentleman that you were, that you yeah. were working with, you know, sometimes it becomes too easy to take no for an example. And sometimes we allow people to tell us who we are when we know different. And, and I think that's a, that's definitely a, a, a key takeaway. So you, you also mentioned something that I want to build on a little bit, which is um, based on the fact that technology is more and more a part of what folks in the military and service are doing, right? You know, 30 years ago, an infantryman, they basically said, here's a gun, go out, follow this person with the radio. Well, now we know that there, there's so much technology, there's so much stuff out in the field, communication, uh, drones for information. Um, so are, are you seeing the the sort of approach of people that are coming out of the military? Are, are they actually more technical? And are you seeing that translate into sort of more and better opportunities working in, in corporate environments? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think anytime that you see technology advance, you're going to see the training advance to handle the technology. And we're going to see that in the veterans. Of course, there's going to be a little bit of a lag. The technology advances. It takes time to get the the military up to speed training wise, and then those folks serve out their time and then they exit out of the military, either as retirees or former military veterans. And, and all that takes time, so there's a little bit of a lag there. I think what we're seeing right now is the increase in, in education and technical training of military veterans based on the fact that in the last 10 years, we've had such spikes in technology, such spikes in the use of technology for the military, those folks are going to get out much more cyber aware than maybe what we were 20 years ago. Okay. That, that's good to hear. Um, are you, I don't know how much in touch you still are with folks in, in the services, but are you hearing them talking at all about like artificial intelligence and machine learning? Like chat GPT is the hottest thing ever. Uh, we just recently had our customer advisory board at headquarters in Boston and at the last minute, Oh, we want to talk about AI. So are you, are you seeing that knowledge base as well in, in folks that are coming out now? I haven't seen so much of the AI or generative AI coming out of the military veteran group. Of course, there is a high interest in it. Uh, you know, the big topic right now, with the folks that I've spoken to about it, especially in the military veteran circle, is just what is that going to do to normalize the the gap right now between the highly educated and the folks still on their education journey to reach that education? Is it going to artificially close that gap? No, no pun intended. But or is it going to close that gap in a useful way that quickens the the usefulness of conversations at a deeper level? Like no longer do we have to wait for 15 years for the, the analyst I'm working with right now, who's already made incredible leaps and bounds. Do we no longer have to wait 15 years for that skill level to reach up? Are they able to upskill faster? Because now they don't have to wait for knowledge. They don't have to wait for instruction. They can 2 a.m. jump into a chat and I get that we need to not trust everything, 
But at the same time, they can jump in and, and say, hey, teach me about this and, and learn things and question it, of course, just like a human, just you question a professor as much as you question a, a generative chat model. But at the same time, they're going to get that knowledge way faster. It's going to be way more available than what it was, you know, 15 years ago, where we believe it or not, we had used to go to bookstores, right? You had to go to a bookstore, buy a book. If it wasn't available near you, then you were out of luck. Like you didn't get to learn that thing. Then came Amazon. Now we can get books digitally. Like this, this quicken of access of knowledge, I think, is going to normalize deep, insightful discussion. Anyway, excellent. Yeah, I, I, was, I was talking to somebody not too long ago about the fact that if when I was a kid, we would have had a lot of dinnertime arguments be finished in 13 seconds rather than three weeks, right? Because you would just go and look it up. And and now, did you have an Encyclopedia Britannica or were you a world book oh, family? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was more of a dust collector, but we had it. Yes, we yeah. and we for a couple of years we got the updates right because you always yeah. got to have have the updates. Uh, but I I agree and I think um, you know one of the things that we've seen and I I one of our former guests Mike Brown uh, he and I were talking about uh, a lot of the educational stuff that the DoD's been sort of. I don't want to say pushing, but growing over the last number of years. Now, if you remember that when it first came out, it was super, super technical and tactical. Yeah. And they're now starting to add the the risk context. And I think that's really, really, really important. Um, so let's let's pivot a little bit. Yeah. Um, so you work with folks that are coming out of the military. Do you have the opportunity to work with hiring managers in corporate environments to help them understand what the value is? Because I think for for good and bad, I think military people have I think there's a there's I think there's an understanding about what they are and you know, very rigid and and you know, rules followers and all those things may or may not be true. But I think sometimes that pushes leaders to maybe not want to hire out of out of that. So, you know, if you could give hiring managers who are struggling to fill seats some advice, what would you tell them or suggest to them as far as looking elsewhere for talent? Yeah, I would say exercise extreme empathy and understand that when you see that military service that you're looking at something, you know, I'll, I'll back up a little, Jeffrey. One of my one of the scenes that really catches me speaking of movies that really gets me every time is the very end of Rambo First Blood. He's sitting in this shot out building and he's with the colonel and he, he's crying. He says, I don't understand. You know, a year ago, I was trusted to fly helicopters worth billions of dollars and run missions with many, many men's lives in my hands. And now I get out and I can't even hold a job for three weeks. And I don't understand. Like, it's a very confusing moment because you are entrusted with so much at such a young age. And when you get out, translating that can be a real challenge. So when a hiring manager sees military veteran, they should see someone who was entrusted with way more than they could ever put on a piece of paper. One, because sometimes there just aren't words for it. And sometimes in other situations, it's not applicable to that situation. How do I put that one point I had my hands on the steering wheel of a multi-billion dollar submarine? Where, what bullet does that fit in? Uh, what what right. bullet does it fit in that I used to hug a torpedo at night when I slept? And it took me a while to get used to not doing that. There's no bullet for that. But know that in that simple words, military veteran is a context 
that a resume could never hold and know that that person who gave you that resume probably has a ton of value and a ton of tenacity to add to an opportunity. They just need that chance. Yeah, right. Well, that's why cover letters, I think, are so valuable. Um, you know, I think uh, cover letters give you an opportunity to tell a story that's not bullet, 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 bullet. So, so for those of you out there that are looking for work, don't don't ignore the cover letter. The resume is great; it has all those things in there. But the cover letter is really an opportunity, I think, to kind of tie everything back together. And I think also, you know, using social media, you know. A lot of former military folks that I know don't even have social media presence for good reason when when you're serving. But when you get out, you need to kind of put yourself out there, uh, out there a little bit. Um, are you yeah. are you seeing any verticals where former and retired military are being more successful or less successful? Maybe kind of pointing people at those verticals might be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. There's two main areas where I see folks gravitate to. One is government contracting. You know, it's that's another one of those familiarity things. It feels familiar. You know the names, you know the structure. Uh, it kind of lowers that cost of entry in terms of emotional uh, first day of school feelings. You know, but I encourage folks to also look external to that. Look inside some of those industries that maybe the technology that you use I would also say with regards to the social media, think about your brand. You know, I talk a lot of my folks with, you know, what is your brand? What is your professional brand? We typically have about three brands in our life. We have the brand that we have with our family. My family knows me as dad, as, as a lot of things, that, you know, fun and, and very familiar. And then in my workplace, I might have another brand of working professional. And then in some of my side uh, efforts, I might be known as something different. Each one of those, I have a different kind of brand, how people view me. And that is all very intentional. That is a structure that is spent months and years building. So that's where social media comes into play. You use a tool like LinkedIn or something like that. You're being genuine, but genuine in a lens. I don't show up to work and talk about the three no-nos, money, politics, and religion. Because that's not the place, right? That's the brand. Or, that. Well, don't forget sports. That's the other one. People oh, yeah, ignore that. Sports. Talking about sports can be really right. bad. I will mention that our Astros took home the pennant this year, but that's uh, <laughs> that's something else. But yeah, absolutely, right? So we have these different lenses and these different environments. And I think for the military veteran, when you're looking out there, you're saying, where do I fit in this marketplace? I hear these stories about how there's all these jobs, but no one's responding to my resume. Build your brand. Think about what do you want. If you want to be an IT technician, start looking at articles, share them, share your perspective. You have a perspective that's unique to you. Share it. Right. I like that. And I think, I think that's a great point, right? Perspective, because I think everyone tends to think other people see things exactly the way they do. I have a, a presentation that I've been doing where my sort of aha up front is that a lot of the mistakes that are happening in cybersecurity are because we tend to do things because we've always done them that way. And everyone's kind of looking through blinders, I think, in a lot of cases. And I think folks come out of the military with a perspective. And I think sharing that perspective is great, but they also need to understand not everyone has that perspective. And I think the, the, I actually posted something on LinkedIn the other day about, you know, I was traveling and I travel by myself and I'm really fast when I do that. But when I travel with my family, not as much. 
And what I started to think about was, you know what? In that context, my family, they're my third parties and I'm not managing because I'm assuming things. So I should be leaving the house earlier. I'm also assuming they know the things that I know, right? I know what gets pulled out of my bag. I know what I have to take off and what I don't. And I think understanding that context and being able to shift over time, I think is important. And do you, is, is it, so I'm going to make a statement, but I, hopefully you'll correct me if I'm incorrect. The longer people serve, I feel like maybe it's harder than to change the perspective. Is that a fair statement or am I simplifying it? Yeah, I would say sometimes the perspective shifts. You know, I, I, I do want to say that when you shared that article, uh, I thought that was one of the best things you had shared uh, in a long time. Oh, thank you. That this idea of the airport and you're with yourself, that was really, really, it, it just jumped out of me as an incredible insight because you're absolutely right. I travel alone for business a lot. And when my family's with me, you're absolutely right. I'm like shoes off, belts off. That all happened in the line. I show up to TSA ready to be, to roll right through. And I look behind me and everyone's, uh, you know, oh, do we take our shoes off? Lights. Yes, of course you take your shoes off. Uh, and you recognize that, you know, you didn't share that insight. You just assume that right. others had it. And I think it's that perspective, especially with vendor security and third-party risk, that you start talking about like, oh, okay, wait a minute. I just assumed they were going to onboard our values, our way of doing business. And they understand if we're handling certain sensitive data, that they're going to respect the sensitivity of our customer data. And, and that, I thought that example was incredible. Good. I, I'm glad, you know, it's, it's sometimes these things just kind of pop up. I literally was finishing that as I was waiting for them to close the door, uh, on, on the plane. But I, I think you also hit on something really interesting from sort of a more pure third party risk perspective. I think we assume other people are going to do what we would do and do it the way we would do it. I had a friend of mine up up north who used to say, the world would be a better place if everyone did what I wanted when I wanted the way I wanted it. And then he would laugh because that is ex- it's hilarious that people expect that. And you know, one of the things that we have seen more and more is as this third-party risk and supply chain risk and vendor risk starts to roll up, right? Because boards and CEOs and COOs are now starting to look at that, I think there is an assumption about what your audience understands. And I always tell people, don't don't ever assume that your audience has the same perspective. And I don't know if you're a, an old odd couple fan, but you know, assume it right, makes an ass out yeah, of you yeah, and me. Yeah. And and I think that's important. And I think that that's actually a great point for military folks because I think military people have a tendency to understand all of the logistical things, right? Even that infantryman who maybe, you know, only has, you know, six months, they recognize that if the supply chain doesn't function, I can't eat, I don't have clothes, I don't have weapons. And, and I think that's also something they can bring, which is, Hey, let's ask other people. Let's talk to other folks. And, um, you know, I used to do a lot of incident response workshops and I always used to tell people your, your day job, that's not what you're going to do here. You're normally the CIO, CIO today. You're going to act as the CEO. And I would do that for everybody. And the workshops didn't always go great, but everybody said, wow, I never thought about it that way. 
And, and I think from a military perspective, I think that's really, really helpful because they teach people that, that bigger picture, um, so I think that's yeah, that's actually absolutely. really, really important. You know, in, the, in the submarine fleet, we have what we call earning our dolphins, and it's our warfare insignia. And it takes usually about ten to twelve months to earn that fresh on the fresh on the boat. And it means that you know everything about the critical systems, that you know enough about someone's job that should they fall in the middle of something critical, you could at least get everyone to safety. You can put out a fire. You know where things are, and and this is drilled into you every minute of every day. Through a very, very strict training process, but it's such a proud moment when you get your dolphins, and it's and it just it carries you with life, and you carry that that cultural connection that hey, I should know a, a little bit about everything around me, that it's not okay for me just to know my job, that the phrase I would bet to say not many submariners would ever say the phrase that's not my job. They would probably say, let me know enough about the job so I can form a perspective. And they carry that into cybersecurity. And I think a lot of military veterans do, where they carry this concept that it's not just my rifle or my rucksack or my submarine room. That's not enough just to know that. We need to broaden that perspective. And that's another thing that hiring managers should know about veterans is that when we come into it, we're not just thinking about us. We're thinking about our team. What is our team doing? What's the health of our team? Is anyone under stress? Because if one person's under stress, that affects the entire team and the entire right. dynamic. And, and there's, that, well, there's, I think there's an ingrained selflessness, right? It's about yes. us. And I, and I think in corporate America, not internationally, but I think corporate America, I, I think we've moved away from that. You know, when I'm going to guess you're probably around my age. So when our parents went out and got jobs, they stayed in those jobs forever. And there was yeah. a loyalty on both sides. And I don't think we always have that. And I think um, sometimes the tendency is not to think about it from the the we perspective. And I, I love that. And, um, you know, yeah, not when I'm working with CISOs, yeah. no, 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 no. Or even plastic watches these days. Yeah. Um, and, and when I work with CISOs, I always say, look, you know, everybody – Everyone needs to at least understand, to your point, enough about everybody else's job. And and the other thing, too, I think, you know, I've done a lot of work when I was at Gartner. I used to talk to a lot of folks in the military and the federal all over the world. And um, there was – I always felt like there was a, a different approach in that there's an awareness that it, it's a much bigger – thing and you rarely hear that's not my job or worse that's not my problem that is yes. the death knell of organizations that's not my problem because it's everybody's problem and that's i think right. that is uh something we need to we need to get through um do you do you see an opportunity like we we hear a lot about public private partnerships and whether they work, we can have a, an entirely different conversation about that. But one of the things that I see as an opportunity, which I don't think is being leveraged, is for active personnel to be more involved with their counterparts in the private sector. So forget about retired people. I'm talking about people that are doing this, right? Military has access to some cutting edge technology that the private sector, I think the rule of thumb is everything you see in a movie is going to be out 10 years later than the movie says. And all of that comes from 
military research, right? So do you see an opportunity for that public-private kind of, you know, reaching across the aisle for lack of a better term? Because I see value there and I don't think it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that either, and it definitely should. You know, you you take you take a military veteran and you and you see them come out and a hiring manager says, well, but they don't have 10 years of experience. Well, they don't have 10 years of your experience. They probably have 10 years of a ton of experience. Is there a one-to-one crossover? I probably can't crosswalk everything, but I can crosswalk the value. And at the end of the day, your security and your clients don't buy processes. They buy value. And if you bring in a military veteran into your organization, one of the things you're going to experience in short order is value. And and that's going to come in several forms that your requisition could never capture in the same way that a bullet on a resume could never capture everything included with military veterans. Excellent. I love that. Some some great, great points there. Um, you know, I, I think the uh, the most recent White House uh, cyber strategy, uh, I think, has a lot more stuff in it about public private. And I think it's always open for discussion about sort of how useful those things are. But I think in particular that that partnership, I think, is um undervalued and has historically been uh, underutilized. So, I think one of the big stigmas that we deal with uh, in, in the veteran community is this idea that we all bark orders at each other. Oh, well, if I get a veteran, I put him in the room, is he going to bark orders at people? Is that his leadership style? Is that her leadership style? You know, I, I don't want to put them in charge of other people because they just got out and they, maybe they're used to just telling people what to do. I think that's a huge stigma for us because that's not at all how it works. If if we were just all a bunch of drones that walked around waiting to be little lemmings, tell me what to do, you know, that right. that would never work because we work, as you've noted, in very highly technical environments with a lot of dynamics and a lot of distractions happening everywhere. And you have to be a free thinking, dynamic thinking person who encourages a team environment, who it, to be a good neighbor, you got to, to have a good neighborhood, you have to be a good neighbor. And that's basically the, the concept in our team dynamics. It's not bark down. It's let's all go because we all have context and we understand what needs to be done. And, and I think hiring managers should keep that in mind as well, that that's a very antiquated concept that the military veteran is coming out of a, a leadership environment of just barking orders down. Not at all. The training that we receive in the military for leadership training is very much collaboration, very much extracting the best out of people and applying that to the scenario. Exercise that insight that you now have as a hiring manager to go and talk to these military veterans and learn more about that culture. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing a real world example of it right now in the Ukraine, right? Mm. One would have thought that a country the size of Russia would have rolled right over them. But you know what? They they don't have soldiers that are empowered. They don't have soldiers that want to be there. And as such, they it's uh, it's an interesting situation that I'll be interested to see how that how that turns out. So, sure. all right, Lewis, this was awesome. Um, yeah, I have a couple of kind of notes I took here for some takeaways, and then I'll I'll kick it back to you for last thoughts. So, 
Lewis's life-changing, life-altering movie was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the first one, not not the Johnny Depp one, not that that one was bad. Um, A big chunk of folks coming out of the military into private sector, a lot of it is a cultural and an accountability thing. And I think that's really, really important. I think hiring managers need to understand that as well. Um, We have, uh, don't let anyone tell you what you can and cannot do. We are all very powerful. We learn, we bring things to the table. Don't let anyone tell you, you can't do that because you don't have this. And I think that's really, really important. And that's more for hiring managers too. I think if you tell someone you can't do this, well, they're going to be inclined to think maybe they can't. But if you look at them and say, you know what? I see the potential. I see the opportunity. Uh, And then um, military people are focused on value. And I love that. That is a story that I've been telling for years. It is something that we're working with our salespeople to talk about. Stop talking about features and functions. Talk about business problems, business solutions. Talk about value. And um, so those are the notes I have. So any final thoughts, Lewis, from from you before we uh, go on our separate ways for the rest of the day? No, I, you know, I just appreciate the time to, to share the perspective of the military veteran in the job search industry. If you're out there and you're feeling disheartened, reach out. You still have a community. There's tons of organizations out there. You can reach out to me. I'll get you in touch with some folks. Uh, the family, the culture still exists. You just got to find it. All right. Awesome. So uh, this has been another episode of Risk and Reels with my guest, Lewis Huerman. I want to thank Lewis for, for joining us. Uh, and then we'll just close. Oh, by the way, um, I talked about a movie and I realized I never said the name. Forrest Gump, that was my movie, not Ferris Bueller. I realized I'm sitting here and I, go, I never said the name of the movie. Um, so stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.